I, I, I got so much to say, and so let's just uh, have a prayer and, and jump in. And Father, in the New Testament, Jesus wrote on one. In the Old Testament, you spoke through one. And I've often been one. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and the witness of the Holy Spirit cause revelation to take place in each of our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lady in my church. By the way, we are, I think we have maybe five people <laughs> over 65 in our church. We just have so many young families. And I'm, I'm retiring next year. I'm 70. And... Uh, uh, but um, there's this lady that comes up and she says, congratulations, Bill. You didn't tell one sports story today. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, rats, because my target audience is when I'm preparing a message, I'm looking at men in their 30s and 40s and trying to motivate them because usually the women are already there. But... Um, but I thought I'd start off with a sports story. Vince Lombardi, who was the coach of the Green Bay Packers and had won several Super Bowls, came back after winning the Super Bowl. They started training camp, which is now starting for the NFL. And he walked into the room, first session of training camp. These are the world champions. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And every one of those guys knew it was a football. But Vince Lombardi's strategy was, we have to get back to the basics if we're going to continue winning. And I think that's exactly what this series is about that you're on, and getting back to the basics and to spiritual routines. And I think most of you have an intuitive sense that somehow these things should be a part of your spiritual life. But for one reason or another, you're not practicing them. At least you're not practicing the ones that Jesus practiced. Habits matter. In his book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective or Successful People, uh, Stephen Covey says this, our habits will make or break us. We become what we repeatedly do. And the bad news is that according to studies, 92% of us have already abandoned all the goals that we set back in January for, this, for the new year. James Clear has a new book. In fact, if you get a chance to read it, it's called Atomic Habits. And he says that our best intentions fall short because we focus on the what, but we don't understand the how. We focus on the action that we want to perform and the thing that we want to accomplish, but we don't understand how to get there. And most everybody that you know has, I think for the most part, similar goals. If I took a survey of the congregation right now, I think that uh, a lot of you would say what's really important in my life is some category of health. Mo most of you would say, you know, I'd like to have good health. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody has as my goal to have dangerously high cholesterol. Uh, when it comes to finances, most people would say, I want to be out of debt. You know, I want to be able to be generous. I want, uh, we want good relationships. Spiritually, if you're a disciple of Christ, you want to be close to God. You want to make a difference in this world. You want your life to matter. And, and most of us have very similar goals and helps, and, 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 but the results are dramatically different. Some are really achieving what they want to in one area, and others are falling drastically short. 
In fact, successful people and unsuccessful people all have similar goals. At the beginning of any season, uh, in any sport, what does the coach come into the team meeting and say? We want to win the championship. I don't think any coach is going to say we're shooting for fifth place this year. You know, when somebody gets married, what do people want? They want love. They want a blessed life. They, they want to be happy. Nobody says our goal is to make it five years and then get divorced. We all want something similar, but we end up with different results. And I'll tell you why it is. Clear suggests that goals don't determine success, but systems determine success. And in fact, quoting from his book, he says, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. But when you read the Bible through the, the lens of that thought, you'll see examples all over the place of people who were successful because they had godly systems. Or they were unsuccessful because they didn't have a godly system. And if you want to model someone like that, that stood out with great faith, I think you just look at the life of Daniel. Why was he successful over a bunch of other young men that, that he stood out to all the Babylonian leaders, that he was gifted and talented and different and, and ultimately godly? Why was it that when he was thrown into the lion's den because of his obedience to God, he was able to stand strong, trusting God, and to come out on the other side? It's because he had a system in place that led to a life of faith and faithfulness. So what was his system? Well, for years and years, David had predetermined that three times a day, every day, that he would stop and spend time with God. And I think if you want to grow in your faith and if you want to be more faithful, you will not rise to the level of your goals. You will fall to the level of your systems. And if you have systems in place that build your faith, that strengthen your knowledge and your intimacy with God, you will be more likely to be a person that you want to become. Now, here's the mistake I think that we tend to make. We tend to think, I want to change the results, whatever it is. I want to lose 20 pounds by the end of the year. I want to be more organized. I want to pay off my credit card debt. I want to spend more time in prayer. Whatever it is, we need to change the system to create the results. If we fix, if it will fix what we do, or if we fix what we do and how we live and the habits in our lives, then the outcomes will fix themselves. Years ago, I said to my son David when he was, I said, be good, be good. And he looked at me and he said, Daddy, you always tell me to be good, but you never tell me how to be good. And as a, as a pastor, I thought, I have been so guilty of that. Spend time in prayer. Spend time sharing your faith. Spend time reading the Word. <laughs> well, you always tell us to do it, but you never tell us how to do it, you know. And so today, I've kind of been given the assignment to talk to you about the habit of prayer. And I think there are many different kinds of prayers. There are mealtime prayers, and all of us know what those are like. Remember camp, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. <laughs> when I studied at the University of Edinburgh, you know, theology is conceived in Germany, corrected in Scotland, and corrupted in America. <laughs> and uh, 
So I was there correcting my theology, and we bowed to pray. And one of the guys at the table, here was his prayer. Father, some have meat and cannot eat. And some would eat but have not meat. But we have meat and we can eat, so let the Lord be thanked. Amen. (laughs) And then there's other kinds of prayers. Bedtime prayers, you know what those prayers are like. Another sports story. I, years ago, I used to be the chaplain of the Minnesota Vikings. And the chaplains of the different teams would get together. And uh, so I had a friend who was a chaplain of the Chicago Bears back when the refrigerator Perry, William Perry, do you remember him? He was a lineman, but every once in a while they put him at fullback when they had like two yards to go and they just boomed him right through the line. Well, William wasn't the sharpest tool in the box, but... Uh, One of the things that Mike Ditka did is he had the Bears say the Lord's Prayer before every game, before they left the locker room. They would take a knee, and every week he would ask a different player to lead the prayer. So this one day, he comes in the locker room, he's about to give a speech, he says, guys, in just a minute I'm going to have William uh, share the Lord's Prayer with us, and uh, lead us in the prayer, and uh, before I do, I just want to say a couple words about the game today. And Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback leaned over to the offensive coordinator and said, I'll bet you $10 he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And the coach said, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, you're on. So the time comes and Coach Dicka says, all right, guys, let's take a knee. William, go ahead and lead us. And he says, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And Jim McMahon leaned over to the offensive coordinator and says, I guess I owe you 10 bucks. I I didn't think he knew it. (laughs) So. Okay, so there's, there's churchy prayers. Thou who bestowest the mostest of the hostest upon us the meest. There are private prayers, like the ones you pray when you're off alone by yourself. There are recited prayers, and there are spontaneous prayers. There are crisis prayers, which can get a little messy. Then there are those conversational prayers, those painfully honest prayers. And then there are abusive prayers and manipulative prayers and deceptive prayers. Now, you would imagine that as a pastor, people ask me often to pray for many different things. What do you pray when you don't know how to pray or what to pray? So what I thought I'd do is I'd just unpack one of Paul's prayers in hopes that it might lead us to this habit of what to pray and how to pray intelligently. So if you have your Bibles, and I guess we're going to put this on the screen too. Uh, Paul... We're going to look at, at, at a prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Paul says basically, based on everything that I've already told you in the chapters leading up to this, I'm going to pray a prayer for you. Verse 14, for this reason, all the things leading up, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And this is the first movement of Paul's prayer. And I'll summarize it this way. Strengthened in your inner being. What do you pray when you don't know what to pray for for other people? 
How do you know if you're praying intelligently? I wonder how often you pray for someone to be strengthened in their inner being. Usually what we do is we spend a lot of time praying about external circumstances. I mean, it would have been so easy for Paul to say, hey, everybody in Ephesus, I'm really praying for you guys. I'm praying that your business would go well so you'll be able to have better jobs and more money. Or maybe he'd say, hey, I'll be praying for you guys that there's some rain so that you'll have good crops this year and you'll be able to feed everybody. Or maybe he'd say, hey, I hope the local soccer team plays well and makes the playoffs. I sure hope the conservatives win the next election. Paul resisted the temptation to pray for fair weather circumstances for those Christ followers who are in Ephesus. Rather, he prays that whatever circumstances are in their way, because this is going to be a mixed bag, there's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad. The prayer that I'm praying for you is that you will be strengthened in your inner being so that you can stand strong no matter what comes your way. Oftentimes we start talking about some difficult situations that we're in, but how often does our conversation turn to things like, how are we doing in our faith walk? Can we say that our faith is deeper? Can we say that our dependence on God for the future is a little bit stronger than it was? Well, often, I think we get messed up with external circumstances that might sometimes lead to weakening people's faith. Now, obviously, I'd never want to say, God, I pray that bad things would happen to them. But Paul says, when he prays this intelligent prayer for the whole church, he says, listen, I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can stand up against anything that the world throws against you. I think that's an intelligent prayer. All right, verse 17. So that, he says, why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So I'm going to summarize it this way. Paul's praying that the people would be convinced of Christ indwelling presence. And by the way, this is something unique to Christianity, that the actual presence of God would accompany people throughout the course of their day. Now, if you remember, one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And so when Paul gets to Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about the Holy Spirit and what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. And Jesus was saying, hey, physically, I'm going to be transported up to my Father. But the Holy Spirit's coming, and the Holy Spirit is going to give you an awareness of my presence. And the awareness of my presence will either make you or break you in difficult situations that you face in your life. And I think that's what Paul's saying in this, this prayer. Hey, whatever you're going through, if you can just get through it with the awareness of God's indwelling presence, you're likely to make it over the course of your life. I, I've had to officiate some very difficult funerals, suicide, infant deaths, heart attacks, devastating cancer, motorcycle accidents, ter terrible things. And I tried to think of words <laughs> that I could say to bring comfort to people at, at those times. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes those words don't come easy in those situations. 
And so many times what I've, I've done, and I do it with trembling hands, I open my Bible to Psalm 23, 4, and I actually hand the Bible either to a grieving parent or to a sibling or to another family member, and I ask them if they would just read one verse out loud, verse 4 of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then these words come out of their lips. For you are with me. And I want to tell you, when someone is going through a difficult time and they get an awareness of the presence of God, sometimes just that awareness is the difference maker between total despair and the ability to have a little bit of hope uh, on the other side of things. Some time ago, I personally was battling some discouragement and a bit of loneliness, because when you're discouraged, you think you're the only one. <laughs> and I was reading Psalm 23, not for what I could get out of it to teach others, but what it could say to me. Which, by the way, that is an occupational hazard for a pastor, to read something for what they could say to, to teach others. And you know, I want to say this, especially if there's any elders here today. One of the things that you've got to make sure you do is you've got to give your pastors time to be alone with God. Not just preparing well, you know, what, what, they, what they're going to say to you, but so that God can speak to them. I have an elder who says to me, Bill, if God doesn't speak to you, he's not going to speak to us. Anyway, I found it interesting as I was reading this because it's the pronouns that David uses in Psalm 23. There are third-person pronouns he talks about God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. But when David gets in the valley, he doesn't want to talk about God. He wants to talk to God. And this transition comes right at verse 4 from the third person pronouns to first, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. And when I'm in the valley, I don't want to just talk about God. I want to talk to God. And so I understand. I, in fact, I underlined in my Bible, you are with me. I not only underlined it, I circled it, I put a star by it, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, Bill, you are not alone. God understands how frustrated I can be, and he understands how daunting tomorrow may seem to me, but he's here with me right now, right here. And I'll tell you, that turned an emotional tide, and it also turned a spiritual tide for me. And it was the difference of, between being alone and being aware of Christ's presence. Now listen, I have a sense by the, just because of statistical averages, that there might be some of you right now who are in agonizing, desperate circumstances. Some of you are in that kind of grief where you just feel like you can't recuperate. I've been in those periods myself. This is the kind of thing that Paul was praying into the people and he was praying for. And I want, I want to say to you on behalf of Paul, Christ is near. His presence is so close, no matter what you're going through. His indwelling presence can make the difference. 
And so it's as if Paul's saying, I want you to be strengthened in your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to be absolutely convinced that where you are right now is not beyond the reach of Christ. His presence is nearby, and I hope you'll live with that awareness. Okay, then he moves on, verse 17, and we got to move on. One of the most beautiful parts of the prayer is in the second half of verse 17. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, verse 18, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And I want to tell you, there's something very surprising that Paul says here. He says, I want you to be rooted in the love that surpasses knowledge. Now, when some of you read this, particularly those of you who know the Bible, this could be very fascinating or it could be extremely troubling to you. And here's why. Because the Apostle Paul was the knowledge guy. He was the intellectual heavyweight champion of the first century. He argued for Christ's resurrection like a high-priced lawyer. He taught theology methodically. He sparred back and forth with Greek philosophers just for recreation. He wrote the book of Romans. By the way, uh, one of the Fuller Seminary professors goes to my church, and that's dangerous because he sits on the front row with the Greek New Testament, so, you know. (laughs) And uh, whenever I make a statement like I just did, uh, I'll... I'll kind of look over, and he'll go. <laughs> and I'm, just, I'm always waiting for the day he goes, you know. Uh, no bow. So one day I was uh, starting a series on the book of Romans, and, and I was trying to make the point that Romans was one of the great books of the Bible. And so I said, you know, many theologians, if you ask them if they, if they were stranded on an island, what one book would they want? And I just assumed that Nate would say out loud Romans because he knew I was starting a series on Romans. And I said, Nate, what what book would you want? And he says, I'd like Thompson's book on how to build ships. (laughs) So anyway, but, but Paul... He was the Rhodes Scholar of Christianity. He was an intellectual Christian rock star. And then he says in this particular passage, as much as as important as knowledge is, and as essential as it is to the establishment of the knowledge of our great God, there is a love that sometimes touches your heart and it surpasses knowledge. It leapfrogs over what knowledge can do for you, and it just gets right into your heart, and it changes something in you. And the moment you feel it, it's an indescribable touch of the affection of the sovereign God. And Paul would say, hey, I'm not not a head guy right now. I'm a heart guy who wants to be touched by the love of God that surpasses knowledge. I want a direct hit of the affection of the sovereign God to my heart in power beyond knowledge. That the God of creation has this focused and passionate and irrational and unconditional and eternal love for me and for you. And when you experience it, it changes you. It bolsters you. It melts you. And in this text, Paul gets a little swept away when he starts thinking about this powerful touch of the love of God. He says, only you knew what it was like. 
How wide? And how long? And how high? And how deep it is? Kind of reminded me of the closing paragraph in Romans 8 where he says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, a couple times Paul in his writing, you just kind of get swept away by this love. You know, if Brian had had asked Paul to come and preach this morning, and he said, hey, Paul, how would you like me to introduce you to the folks at Good Shepherd? I think Paul would say, would you just tell them I'm a terrible, terrible sinner who just got wrecked by the love and the grace of God. And I've never recuperated from it. And that's all you need to know about me. Our salvation is not a head moment. It's not like you just turn the page and you go, Oh, yeah, I give an assent to that doctrine. Paul's salvation was a moment in a moment, a tidal wave of the personal love of God for him. And it just washed over his heart. And when it sweeps over you, I think you'll go, you know what? That is a love that surpasses knowledge. It surpasses the creeds. Now, listen, I think creeds are important. I think doctrines are important. If you knew me, you know how important I think doctrine is. But there's a time when what we need is to be touched deeply by the love of God. Moving on, Paul says there's another thing that I really want to have happen. He says, I would like you to be filled to capacity with God himself. Look at the rest of verse 19. He says that you may be filled to the the measure of all the fullness of God. Hey, listen, if your bucket is only a quarter full, it's not enough. If it's only half full, it's not enough. Paul says, I wish that you walked around every day filled to capacity with God himself. There's a great line, by the way, by uh, uh, D.L. Moody. This lady said, sir, are you filled with the Spirit? He said, yes, madam, but I leak. Um, but, <laughs> but, but what does it mean to be filled with God to capacity? Well, I'll let you read Romans or, or Ephesians 5 when you get home. But the thoughts of God, the feelings of God, the words of God, the truths of God, the wisdom of God, and that's something we can all pray for. Now, here's one of the classic texts in all the Bible, verse 20. Now to him, and Brian prayed it, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. The King James, which my grandmother told me was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for her, uh, The the King James Version says, exceedingly abundantly. Another translation reads, infinitely more. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us. I'll, I'll summarize it this way. I wish that all you believers in Ephesus could be convinced of God's miracle working power. And I think there's a lot of people, when they become Christians, they actually believe that the sovereign God can do anything he wants to do. And they pray pretty outrageous prayers. But after many months or many years of walking with God, they kind of settle into a pattern of faith. And they get around some other, what I would call, deadbeat Christ followers. 
And what happens over time is a lot of people start developing a category of stuff that isn't worth praying to God about anymore. It's the impossible category. You know, I prayed for that person for three months and they're still a hard egg. So I'm going to put them over in the impossible category list. I prayed for that situation in my life for four years, but God didn't do anything. So I'm going to put that over in the impossible category, and I'm not even going to bother God with it anymore. I watch people do this all the time. And honestly, I have watched it in my own life. Prayers that I used to pray with faith somehow become prayers that I no longer pray because I don't think God can do it anymore. And here's what Paul says. Hey, gang, God is able. He can do not just the miraculous. God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can imagine. And what Paul wants us to know is God is able. Don't give up on God. Don't strip him of his sovereignty. Don't think that he's lost his stuff. Pray with faith. He's that powerful and he's that good, so don't give up. And here's the last statement from this. Probably the pinnacle of the prayer, verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I could talk for 45 minutes about what it means to have glory in the church. But my mother always told me you'll be remembered for what you don't say, not for what you do say. But I'll just say this. I'm so glad that my daughters have seen the glory of God in the church. They've been through errors where they have seen the power of God in unmistakable ways in our church. And if I have grandchildren someday, I want them to see that, that glory too. And if they grow up and have a family someday, I want their children. And then I want their children to see it too. And so when you're filled with God, more than you're concerned about your own success, you just want God's glory to be manifest and to be known throughout his church to all generations. As I was preparing this message I have to be honest with you, I was concerned about how it would come across. But then I thought, you know what? Why don't I just pray this prayer for the people of Good Shepherd? And so that's what I've been doing. I've been praying that whatever you're going through, and I don't know what you're going through, but I've been praying that you would be strengthened in your inner being. And that you would be bolstered by the power of the Holy Spirit no matter what circumstances you're facing. And I've been praying that you would supernaturally feel the indwelling presence of God and that not one of you would be lonely and that as you leave this worship gathering that you would be aware of the presence of God. And I've been praying that some of you who haven't felt the affectionate touch of the, directly from God in a long time would actually get that touch and today you would feel like God touched my life. I pray that there would not be any $3 worth of God people in the sanctuary today. Do you know that poem by Wilbur Reese? I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man. I want warmth of the womb and not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
So I've been praying that you would be filled to capacity with God himself. And for all of you who have just given up on believing that God was able to do something in your life more than you could ask, I've been praying that you would be renewed in your faith to pray those courageous types of prayers again. And that as you go through this next week, you'll be more concerned about God's glory, more concerned than about the little challenges that you're facing. And before we close, I'd like us to bow in an attitude of prayer, and I'd like to just go through this list and ask you, would you put somebody's name by each of these categories? And I'll lead it through it. Let's pray. Let's make this our prayer. Strengthen in their inner being. I want you to put someone else's name in this category as an act of love towards that person who comes to your mind. It might be a family member. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody that you're aware of. Right now, would you do an unselfish thing and pray an intelligent prayer for a family member or a friend Who do you know that's right now is just beaten down in the circumstance of their life and everything's pretty much overwhelming to them? Would you put their name in that category? Just pray, God, would you strengthen that person? Strengthen them by your Holy Spirit in their inner being. Quietly pray that right now. And then convinced of Christ's indwelling presence. Who's lonely? Who do you know that feels isolated? And if they were aware today of the indwelling presence of Christ to accompany them to the proximity of Christ, if they knew that it would change their day, would you put their name there? And then rooted in the love that surpasses knowledge, What hard-hearted person do you know who's probably never been emotionally moved by the direct, affectionate touch of God? Who would you say, oh man, if, if that person could just actually have a moment of being overwhelmingly, irrationally loved by God, I think it would just wreck them. Who's that person you want to pray for? And then filled to capacity with God himself. Who do you know who is full of God or half full of God and and maybe a quarter full? Who could you pray for this, this, that woman or that man would be filled to capacity with God himself? And then convinced his miracle working power. Who do you know who needs a miracle? Who needs a Hail Mary pass from the 20 yard line all the way down to the other side of the field? Who needs to see God do something exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think? Who needs that in their life? Would you pray that they would have the faith to believe that God could? And finally, for Christ's glory to be displayed in the church through the generations. Pray that every Christ follower who you know would be more concerned about and more eager for God's glory to be displayed in the church. And if you drive past another church on the way home today, instead of comparing it to yours, would you just say, God, I want your glory to be manifest through the ministry of that church. And may my children and my grandchildren see the wonderful work of God through the church.
So pray now through your grace, the things that we've just prayed about may become a reality in the lives of the people whose names we put in, and that it would bring glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.